Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 181. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hying. It is July 5th, 2023. It is. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's the day after Independence Day. I must say, um, Independence Day has become a rather poignant event for those of us who are concerned about this marvelous nation of ours. Yeah. I feel more explicitly patriotic than I recall feeling before. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I don't I don't feel a difference in the patriotism, but I feel a difference in the urgency, which maybe that's a distinction without a difference. No, I, I get it. I think I think I understand. I think um, I think even though we did a lot of international traveling early in our twenties uh, and our thirties, and it was in those travels that I came to understand how much value there was in our home country and and how much we had going on, even while there were flaws. Uh, I think that in combination with what you were identifying as an urgency, a sense of, wow, this may actually, this may actually be at serious risk uh, due to many people's failure to recognize what it is that we have, uh, has, has caused it to feel at this point like it's, um, like we all need to find our patriotism honestly yeah yeah i've been having many conversations with people that we know and i think this is a a dawning collective realization about about the moment we live in and i think about the fact that the jeopardy is even it's well beyond the republic it's yes. obviously a, a global phenomenon it is obviously a political jeopardy sense that authoritarianism seems to be taking root. Lots of regressive belief structures seem to be returning with a vengeance. And I think also across the board, people are also recognizing that the, the structures that drive the world biotically are not healthy. Yeah. That, uh, there's, there's no shortage of jeopardy. There is no shortage of jeopardy. Yes. Unfortunately, that is true. Um, okay. Let's get to uh, just top of the air logistics stuff sure. uh, before before launching in. Uh, this is live stream 181, as you said, second half of a twin prime with 179. Yeah, no, you can, yeah. You just... Twin prime are primes that are only one digit apart. Uh, they have only one digit between them. They only have one integer. One integer between them. Sorry. Yes. I should tell the people at home Go who, uh, you know, perhaps those who are just listening and therefore cannot see that I am fighting seasonal allergies and i'm mm -hmm. uh let's say i am fighting valiantly but i am not winning <laughs> <laughs> no no you have you have your moments of uh you, you win occasional battles as far as i can tell but oh i, I do i win some battles going to be i win some battles and ultimately yeah. i will uh, uh i will survive to sneeze another day but um but it ain't pretty sometimes so yeah so uh, yeah that's it's a sort of uh preemptive apology for the sniffles and the yeah yes and uh, you know it's possible again people who are just listening will never detect it because of my uh my amazing levels of professionalism but people who are watching could see a kind of a snotapalooza i i'm not guaranteeing that won't happen i am okay good wow okay. <laughs> because we have a producer here have... who will cut to cut to black oh i thought you were implying you had some sort of a big clothespin over there <laughs> You were going to rush in and prevent such a thing. 
Okay, so if you're watching on YouTube, please consider joining us on Rumble and subscribing to our channel there. We've got another live stream uh, this coming Saturday on July 8th, and then no more until Wednesday, July 19th. We've got some uh, some things that various people have to do, and then we're going to be coming to you regularly on Wednesdays uh, at 11.30 a.m. Uh, Pacific from, from then on. So we're moving our live stream schedules to Wednesdays, 11.30 a.m., with the exception that this coming Saturday will be our last uh, regular Saturday podcast. And we have chat live on Rumble today, as we've been doing since we moved to Rumble a little while back. Um, but we're going to go on chat hiatus for two weeks, and then we'll return on July 19th with no chat. We're going to stop chat, and we are going to instead encourage locals only live conversation what we're going to call it a uh, watch party watch party yeah so we have not we locals is there like you, you can go there we have not yet set up like what the you know what what the amounts will be so at the moment you can go and there are people there having good conversations but we're going to basically do a uh, see see if we can help improve uh what we are hearing is uh a a not as fabulous level of conversation as some people in the chat would hope for um by moving it into into local so one last live chat today um and today's time we're not going to do a q a today but we will on saturday today's topics include we're going to talk a little bit more uh about freedoms in higher ed brett is going to present a thought experiment and uh, we're also going to talk about some research and reporting on cancer rates that vary by sex. We have some new merch, PSYOP until proven otherwise. Check it out at darkhorsestore.org. And we're going to tell you about all the rest, natural selections, uh, Patreons, all that at the end. Uh, but what we will do before launching into the main part of the podcast is, as usual, uh, present to you our sponsors, all of whom we... Um, truly and um and thoughtfully do vouch for we have three of them as usual at the top of the hour here we go our first sponsor this week is new to us it's hillsdale college if you were a few years or decades out of school and wondering what you learned and what was the point you're not alone maybe you wish you had taken more time to study topics that would be more meaningful to you or some you know something lasting and profound if so you're also not alone and it's not too late since 1844, that's 1844, Hillsdale College has been providing an education that focuses on freedom and character because they believe that a virtuous citizen is the best defense for liberty. That's why they've taken some of the core classes they teach on campus and made them available for free online for anyone who wants to learn. That's right, for free. Time and technology have changed a lot of things, but they have not changed basic fundamental truths about the world and our place in it. I spent some time uh, on their site this week looking at some of their online courses, and they really look fantastic. Uh, there are several on the Constitution, on Congress, and the Presidency, and the Supreme Court. There are great books courses, as well as courses focusing on the works of C.S. Lewis, on Mark Twain, Shakespeare, Jane Austen, more. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's history from ancient Christianity to the rise and fall of the Roman Republic to the Second World War. And even classes on math and logic, from Euclid to modern geometry, and one on the great principles of chemistry. Over 3 million people have taken a Hillsdale College online course. You could be next. There are 39 free courses to choose from. They're easy to follow, self-paced, so you can start wherever you want, whenever you want. In fact, you can start right now. It's everything you need, all in one place, with no long-term commitment. Learn when and where you want. Enjoy now, nope, enroll now in Hillsdale's Not For Credit online courses program. It's free, it's fun, and it will change the way you understand our country, the world, and your place in it. 
Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash darkhorse to enroll. There's no cost. It's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash darkhorse to register. Once again, hillsdale, H-I-L-L-S-D-A-L-E dot E-D-U slash darkhorse. Fantastic. Very excited to have them as a sponsor. Yes. So am I. Very much so. Our second sponsor this week is Mudwater, one of our favorites. Mudwater makes a fantastic drink. It's spicy and delicious and chock full of adaptogenic mushrooms and Ayurvedic herbs. With one-seventh of caffeine as a cup of coffee, you get energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash of coffee. It can be thought of as a coffee alternative, but it's way more than that. If you like the routine of making and drinking a cup of warmth in the morning, but don't drink coffee or trying to cut down, try mud water. If you're looking for a different way to kick off your day, a delicious, warming, enhancing way that isn't just a caffeine rush, try mud water. Each ingredient was added with intention. It has cacao and chai for just a hint of caffeine, lion's mane mushrooms to support focus, cordyceps to help support physical performance, chaga and reishi to support your immune system, and cinnamon, which is a potent antioxidant, and many more ingredients besides. Mudwater also makes a non-dairy creamer out of coconut milk and MCT, and a sweetener out of coconut palm sugar and lacuma, which is the fruit of an Andean tree, which was used by the Inca, to add if you prefer those options. Or you can mix and match. Add a bit of their coconut milk and MCT creamer with some honey from bees, real bees. Or use Mudwater's lacuma and coconut palm sugar sweetener and skip the bees entirely if you don't like bees. Mudwater's flavor is warm and spicy with a hint of chocolate, my favorite, plus masala chai, which includes ginger and cardamom, nutmeg, and cloves. It's also delicious blended into a smoothie. I recommend trying it with banana and ice, milk or milk-like substance, mint and cacao nibs. Fantastic. Mudwater's flavor is warm and spicy with a hint of chocolate. No, I already read that paragraph, didn't I? Wow. Wow. Yep. It's like we've been hurtled backwards in time. Yes, by like 12 seconds. Very yeah. far, but I mean, far. any any regression in time is significant. Yeah, it's it's Groundhog Minute. <laughs> <laughs> Not a thing, but okay. Mudwater is 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified, and it allows you to build a morning ritual to promote sustained energy without the crash. To get 15% off, go to mudwater.com. Uh, slash darkhorsepod to support the show. Use code darkhorsepod. That's Dark Horse Pod, P-O-D, for 15% off. And, oh, let me just spell out Mudwater is M-U-D-W-T-R. So to get 15% off, go to M-U-D-W-T-R.com slash Dark Horse Pod to support the show. All right. Our third sponsor this week is Grass Pollen. No. <laughs> and our final sponsor this week <laughs> is Vivo Barefoot hypoallergenic shoes made for feet. Now, I don't actually know that they're hypoallergenic, but I can say- they have say, never given you this I response. wear them all year, and I only sneeze during grass pollen season. So chances are very, very low shoes. that this is the yeah, shoes. So yeah, if yeah. they're not hypoallergenic, they're very close to it. Shoes made for feet is what I was getting at. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it wasn't my fault. I didn't invent the monocots. <laughs> no, you didn't. No, you didn't. And thank you for not. Yeah, they uh, were around long before I was. Yes. Okay. All right. Back to the topic at hand. Vivo was one of our very first sponsors, and they remain one of our favorites. Everyone should try these shoes. Most shoes are made for someone's idea of feet, not Vivos. Vivos are made by people with feet who know how to use them, and word is spreading. People often approach us because of the Vivos we are wearing, saying that they've heard that they're very good. 
And they are. They're every bit as good as you have heard. Here at Dark Horse, we love these shoes. They are beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on is amazing. And they cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. They are fantastic. Our feet are the product of millions of years of evolution. Humans evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot. Modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot function and are contributing to a health crisis. People move less than they might, in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. Enter Vivo Barefoot. Vivo Barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help you build your natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them. Vivo Barefoot has a great range of footwear for kids and adults and for every activity from hiking to training and everyday wear. They're also a certified B Corp that is pioneering regenerative business principles, and their footwear is produced using sustainably sourced natural and recycled materials with the aim to protect the natural world so you can run wild upon it. Go to vivobarefoot.com and use the code DARKHORSE15 to get an exclusive 15% off. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com and use the code, code DARKHORSE15 at checkout. Point of order? Yes. Zebra has a question. Yes. Do they make shoes for hooved animals? I do not believe that Zebra they, shoes, horseshoes, horse anything shoes. like that? I think horseshoes and zebra shoes are the same shoes, right? I would they think just so. rebranded for mm -hmm. a different market. Absolutely. But, Probably uh, at an increase in price for the zebras. Or a decrease in price. No, I'm thinking higher. I guess there are fewer zebras, so the cost per unit. Sure. Okay. Higher mm -hmm. price for the zebra shoes. Yep. But yep. Uh, I don't think so. Also, just fancier, fancier animals in general, maybe more concerned about their, their looks, just like uh, the same product is rebranded for women and the price goes up. I expect that uh, zebra shoes are more expensive than horseshoes, but I do wonder if Evo makes zebra shoes. See, here's the thing. Yep. It's not just the rebranding for women. It's the pH balancing and the rebranding <laughs> for women. That, yes. So there's work involved. It's, it's not for nothing. <laughs> oh man <laughs> <laughs> what a planet huh <laughs> oh gosh i you know i don't know if if uh millennials or, or gen z's will get like this is, a, this is such a gen x targeted deodorant commercial right this is secret yes ph brand ph branded ph balanced ph oh, branded would have been more accurate yeah. truth in advertising yeah exactly yeah oh good lord um not to say that there aren't sweat differences between men and women but for fuck's sake yeah exactly yeah. ffs yeah all right okay let's start um i have a correction to make from last time which um then i would uh, i hope that we can just talk a little bit about um a little bit more than i discovered so we talked extensively last time about the supreme court's recent ruling that universities cannot use race as a factor in admissions and i mentioned um i'm not sure i mentioned by name but i mentioned that in 1957 in sweezy versus new hampshire a ruling uh of the supreme court then in a concurring opinion uh justice felix frankfurter enumerated the four essential freedoms of the university and I've now gone back, and it was actually surprisingly difficult to find his complete opinion. He's, he's quoted a lot of places, um, but it's, it's excerpted. And I've now got the complete opinion, and it turns out he didn't say that. 
Um, and so one of the one of the lessons here is um, even when you are, you know, quoting something out of, for instance, the Supreme Court itself, uh, you need to go back and find your original sources or, you know, lay the trail so that it's clear, like where, where the error may have happened. He does. He, those words do show up in his opinion, but he is quoting someone else. Uh, he himself is quoting a statement from a conference of senior scholars at the University of Cape Town and Vitvatersrand. I don't know. Don't speak Afrikaans. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, don't I was know. compelled. Yeah, okay. Both in South Africa. Um, so these aren't his words, but theirs. And I want to share um, what the, the whole thing that he's actually quoting here mm -hmm. uh, in this opinion. So Zach, you can go ahead and share my screen here if you like. Uh, so this is, again, a concurring opinion by Justice Frankfurter in Sweezy versus New Zealand, New Zealand, New Hampshire in 1957. Uh, and he's quoting uh, from this conference of scholars uh, at open universities in South Africa. In a university, knowledge is its own end, not merely a means to an end. A university ceases to be true to its own nature if it becomes the tool of church or state or any sectional interest. A university is characterized by the spirit of free inquiry its ideal being the ideal of Socrates, to follow the argument where it leads. This implies the right to examine, question, modify, or reject traditional ideas and beliefs. Dogma and hypothesis are incompatible, and the concept of an immutable doctrine is repugnant to the spirit of a university. The concern of its scholars is not merely to add and revise facts in relation to an accepted framework, but to be ever examining and modifying the framework itself. Freedom to reason and freedom for disputation on the basis of observation and experiment are the necessary conditions for the advancement of scientific knowledge. A sense of freedom is also necessary for creative work in the arts, which, equally with scientific research, is the concern of the university. It is the business of a university to provide that atmosphere which is most conducive to speculation, experiment, and creation. It is an atmosphere in which there prevail the four essential freedoms of a university, to determine for itself on academic grounds who may teach, what may be taught, how it shall be taught, and who may be admitted to study. And again, that's Justice Frankfurter in 1957 quoting the open universities in South Africa. Stunning. Stunningly, I, I don't, it's not prescient exactly. It's just, it's, it's stunningly on point. Yes, well and, articulated. And demonstrates how far we are falling in our understanding of what it is that universities are for, what it is that science is, what it is that we are su supposedly doing and supposed to be doing at all the levels in the university from, you know, from undergraduates through, you know, senior PhD researchers. Yeah. In fact, the line in there that hits the hardest for me, mm -hmm. uh, I'll be interested if it struck you the same way is Approximately, dogma and hypothesis are incompatible. Yes. And this is the one-line repudiation of the entire yes. mania over uh, misinformation, follow the science, yes. all of this. Um, and it's what we have been uh, trying to articulate throughout, is that, in fact, one has to be able to explore uh, without guardrails including many ideas that will turn out to be incorrect in order to find things that we do not yet know to be true that we will ultimately understand to be true. And for the universities to have participated, not just stood back, but participated in trying to regulate thought over what was believed to be true in a emergency, 
Mm -hmm. right? This was declared an emergency. That means it's emergent. That means nobody's an expert. It's all new. You no, can't that's tell. an important point, the, 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 the shared uh, etymology of the two words. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's it's literally right there. They're telling you this is a, a realm in which nobody is expert, which means that we are going to have to try out a whole group of ideas, mm -hmm. most of which will turn out to be false, and then some of them will be stubbornly robust and refuse to be falsified, and we will ultimately recognize that those are the true ones. Who the hell were these people telling their own employees and the rest of the world what they were required to think? Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's that line. Dogma and hypothesis are incompatible. And I think, in part, it reveals, well, that, that, it is, that is simply true. And what we saw among so many who claim to be people of science and people of medicine, uh, which needs to be informed scientifically, even if it is understood to be a practical application of scientific understanding as opposed to a science in and of itself, what we saw revealed was something that we'd been seeing since we started out in academia, which is that unfortunately many people, even who are actively getting or have already gotten credentialed in science, don't appear to understand what it is that that means. And so you will see people claiming, it's not about the pursuit of truth, really. Well, then what is it about? Oh, hypothesis doesn't matter. Seriously, what does then? And so we have the rise of insidious, seemingly obvious phrases like data-driven, data-driven science. No, it's not, it's not how it is. And yet, you know, from well, well back before we had any kind of a public stage, we were seeing this at, at universities that we were affiliated with. Um, claims uh, that to do science, you needed to be data-driven. That suggests that the data come first. The data never come first. The data are a test of a hypothesis which means that the data come first, you have not tested a hypothesis, in which case they're not data in support of any scientific conclusion. Yeah, they're observations. They can they lead you to a hypothesis. Right. So um, just a few more words from Frankfurt. These are, these are actually his words in this, um, in this concurring opinion from 1957. You can show my screen if you like here, Zach. Uh, I've just got a few little sections here. He says, progress in the natural sciences is not remotely confined to findings made in the laboratory. Insights into the mysteries of nature are born of hypothesis and speculation. For society's good, if understanding be an essential need of society, inquiries into these problems, speculations about them, stimulation and others of reflection upon them must be left as unfettered as possible. Political power must abstain from intrusion into this activity of freedom pursued in the interest of wise government and the people's well-being, except for reasons that are exigent and obviously compelling. One more. This means the exclusion of governmental intervention in the intellectual life of a university. It matters little whether such intervention occurs avowedly or through action that inevitably tends to check the ardor and fearlessness of scholars, qualities at once so fragile and so indispensable for fruitful academic labor. So here we have Frankfurt arguing for ardor, interesting word here, the ardor and fearlessness of scholars. Once again, qualities at once so fragile and so indispensable for fruitful academic labor. And of course, that is partly what tenure is supposed to provide, right? This is, this is, this is the point of tenure. Tenure has problems for sure. And there are, I have, I have heard, and I have, I have found myself on the side of arguments on both sides of the argument with regard to tenure. And one of the strongest arguments for tenure is that it means that 
the scholar, the faculty member who has tenure cannot be gone after on the basis that his job is at risk by the administration, by his or her colleagues. Of course, tenure doesn't turn out to be the kind of security that uh, that we might have thought it did as we as we learned ourselves uh, at at Evergreen six six plus years ago. Uh, but that is what it is supposed to do. Uh, that that early in a faculty person's career, if they are if they are tenure track, which means that they have the chance to secure tenure at some point, and you know this is putting aside the fact that I think it's now a majority of faculty who aren't even tenure track. So that's just a, a, a whole different kind of insecurity uh, that is being created by a system that is just off the rails. Um, but an early career tenure track uh, faculty member may play it a little bit safe until they get tenure, at which point they are supposed to know that they are free, that any fear that they had of retribution for investigating questions and problems that are considered figured out, we've done that. You don't need to ask those questions anymore. Oh, that's not the kind of questions we ask now. Oh, good people don't ask those questions. Well, you know what? I've now got tenure. I'm gonna ask the questions that interest me. That's supposed to be what tenure offers. Yes. The problem, of course, as we've discussed before, is that this is a system that trains people such that at the point that they get tenure, they have no recollection of how they might use it usefully. Right. And in fact, right. during COVID, the number of tenured academics who stood up and said the obvious was tiny. Tiny. Um, because so small. basically this is a training program yes. that is uh for whatever reason built to ensure that when you get tenure you won't use it yes um so that is a tragedy and it's not an argument against tenure itself it's an argument against a system that functions in such a way that it trains you not to make use of it when you attain it um it, it could yeah. be resurrected if you fix that aspect of the system but that would have to be done uh quite deliberately and at the moment it's uh it's another one of these well-intended programs that has unintended consequences that render it worse than useless. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's right, and that's that is where I fall now, uh, um, actually, with regard to tenure, and I'm I'm shocked. Yeah, to find it, myself there. No, it it, uh, it is it is necessary that something do the job. Yeah. Of creating a zone of safety for uh, renegades, because frankly, they're the ones who figure out where the future is. Right. Um wanted to point out a couple couple things. Mm -hmm. Evergreen, as you well know, um, was founded by true radicals who threw out every single component of a normal university that wasn't, you know, bolted to the floor. They threw out departments, they threw out uh, tenure, they built something parallel to these things, but not exactly the same. But they also changed the fundamental logic of academic freedom. And you can, you can hear it in that quote that Frank Fur is, uh, is giving voice to in, in his opinion there, where the university has the right to hire who it would yes. hire and to say what will be taught there and in what way it will be taught. That is not how Evergreen works. And will be admitted to study. Right. But at Evergreen, professors literally had the right to choose what they wanted to teach and in what way to teach it, which mm -hmm. was a disaster when a professor wasn't up to that challenge. 
there was a lot of bad teaching there, but there was also a lot of excellent teaching because the administrators were not in a position to tell the professors what to do, and so a good professor could make a lot of use of that freedom. So anyway, that is a, that is, I, the way I see it now, that is effectively a libertarian view of academic freedom, right? If institutions are free to hire those that they would hire to teach what they would have taught in the ways that they want it taught. Mm -hmm. That's very different than the individual they have hired being liberated to teach whatever they think needs to be taught in whatever manner they feel like teaching it. Yeah. No, and I, there's this there's this incredible tension. And I've I've seen <clears throat> people who I understood to be on one side politically come down very strongly on the other side of this issue and and in in both directions and I've been I guess I'm not so surprised anymore, but I've seen, you know, avowed conservatives um, saying that the choices of what to teach and how to teach it needs to be in the hand of the in the hands of the administrators, and um, my, you know, I, I recoil at this. This is this is this is this is utter insanity. On the other hand, given what so many faculty are thinking now or failing to think, and what they think is passing for a scholarship. And what they are therefore um, passing into the brains of students. Well, I don't. I don't want those faculty near. You know the the fragile new brains of people that I care about either. On the other hand, are the administrators better? No. Of there's course, no. Of, there's of, no solution. Of course, in that they're not. Pairing. There's there's no solution in that pairing. What you need is actually excellent, independent-minded, creative, analytically capable thinkers who are not just courageous about asking questions, but courageous, but confident enough in their own selves to get up in front of a room of 18-year-olds or 25-year-olds or whatever and say, here's what we're talking about today. We're talking about it because I chose for us to be talking about it, and I am well-versed in several aspects of it, and I expect that I know more than all of you about most aspects of it, but there will be gaps in my knowledge. I will be wrong about some things, and I encourage you to think through what it is that I'm saying, and if you find those gaps or those errors, to respectfully, carefully, don't make the sport out of this, but to bring those to my attention, and let's figure it out together, because the point here is figuring out what is true and what is right, not having you, the audience, the students, uh, just bow down to me because I came in here with a PhD. And, you know, how rare are faculty like that? Unfortunately, extremely rare. Well, they are rare in part because of the hegemony of a system that uh, has constructed a mechanism for distributing dogma in the guise of science, mm -hmm. right? In other words, the university has been broken for a very long time. Right? It's now yeah. in collapse, and obviously so. But that was true. The collapse was beginning back when you and I were college students. We could see it. Yep. And so what happens if... So who knows how long before that, right? That's academic right. generation after academic generation passes with a system of power being used to train people not to use tenure, mm -hmm. right? So what you don't have is a institution full of scholars who are used to, you know, rattling each other's cages and, you know, discovering errors in thinking and, you know, moving the ball forward. What they are is compliant with a political order inside the university that pretends to be something else. Mm -hmm. So when they train their students, those students pick up this uh, cowardice 
And mm -hmm. that's what we saw, an <clears throat> epidemic of cowardice in the university system in the face yep. of obvious nonsense, that is analytical nonsense, which it was un unable to call out. And it is not surprising that two or three academic generations later, you can say, well, do I want the faculty empowered or do I want the administrators? I don't want any of those idiots empowered, right? I want something else. I want people who actually know what they're doing and there yeah. aren't enough of Not that. that faculty, not those administrators. And frankly, and this, you know, I was reminded of this. You and I have both talked about the following many times. Um, you in part in front of Congress and me in part at the Department of Justice. And we are we have been asked, and you know, less so the longer it gets since the Evergreen blow up, but you know, what what do you have to say to the faculty? What do you have to say to the administrators? What do you have to say to the students? And so many people are like, ah, oh, these students, they're so reprehensible, they just don't know what to do. Like, you know what? What we saw was that students were reachable. They're young yet. They're not ideologically captured. Increasingly, they are being more and more ideologically captured because they're being preached at in the K through 12 system, right? Like this, you know, the, even that is changing, but they're still less likely to be ideologically captured uh, than people whose very careers depend on them continuing to, to spew the party line. And so, you know, administrators have a particular set of jobs that they need to do and need to fix. And faculty have a ton of work to do, and many of them are not going to be savable, honestly. But most of the students are. Most of the students are, but you have to meet them with, with conviction that might change, with courage, with respect, and with pushback when they say dumb things, and everyone will say dumb things. Well, we can, so I, I would, I felt the entire time that we were teaching uh, college that on the one hand, it was marvelous what we were able to accomplish. We found lots and lots of students who were very reachable and we reached a great many. Yep. On the other hand, it was an uphill battle at the point you get to college because yep. so much yeah. damage had been done earlier. This is true. And that the right place to intervene is, you know, in grade school. Right, the, the 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 system that damages people as they advance through the supposed educational uh, environment is, uh, you know, it robs you of de developmental capacity, and it may be more fun to teach college in a sense because the material is is richer, but it's the wrong place to to save people. Right, the system is broken early on, and what you have is a cascading failure that at the point that you get to college has people who are increasingly empowered and uh, have been betrayed by those who told them how you figure out what's true. No, and it's it's part of why what's happening in K-12 is so is 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 so important. And uh, you know the the obvious the obvious obvious things around trans ideology. Um, which actually threaten to and do do physical uh, irreparable damage to to children uh, when it's taken to its now apparently um, accepted medical extent uh, is just it, it, it's a perfect encapsulation of the set of risks. But even even absent that, using children as tools in your own ideological battle as opposed to, Giving children experience, real physical experience of the real physical world, and the tools to do the relatively few things when they're very young that they really will need to do, like read and write 
and do some math and then get them outside gardening and get them outside playing sports and uh, have them make art and have them consider patterns and try to figure out what it is that is could possibly be causing those patterns. And when they propose ideas that, you know, if they're five, maybe you don't call it a hypothesis, but maybe you do. We certainly did with our kids. When they're 10, you do. And you reveal to them how deeply personally they feel about any hypothesis they come up with, even if it's something they didn't even know existed 10 minutes ago. And it's that sort of, once you can begin, once you be, can begin to reveal to people how much they've taken on a belief, even one that they didn't even know existed a few minutes ago, then you can be able to separate for them. The emotional sense of like this, like I will die if you don't do this for me, as opposed to maybe that's just not true and that's okay. So let's move on. That's great, but it's worse than that. I'm sorry. I know that's inappropriate here because what you've just described is an excellent way of educating people, but the, the problem, many of our colleagues who are comparatively awake to the problem in the university system, mm -hmm. see the perverse incentives and they see the meltdown and they think, ah, fix the perverse incentives, solve the meltdown. They don't understand there aren't enough people who are capable of doing what you've just outlined, right? If you were to solve the, you know, it's it's tenure, right? Tenure proves this point. Okay, but you, you I was talking about college and you said, no, we have to talk about K-12 and now you're talking about college again. So, well, I, you, so you wanted to talk about the, like the elementary school kids. Well, there's no, there's no tenure there. It's the same, it's the same point. The point is, Look, is. look at what tenure proves about fix the incentives, right? A professor who has immunity from their colleagues' dirty looks and negative opinions is a professor for whom the incentive structure has been fixed. And they don't behave courageously because they've been developmentally trained not to. So what, what we have is a system that begins miseducating people in grade school. Those people mature through the ranks. Then they ultimately become professors. And I, I think that actually there's plenty of elementary school teachers and people who want to be elementary school teachers who can do what I said. No, you could do that. But how long would it take you to solve the problem so that it cascaded up and you had a system of people in At college who were actually several generations? It takes several generations. At least a generation. Why would it take several? Why does it inherently take several? Because it has to spread. Because you say there are enough people. I don't think there are enough people to staff every classroom for every grade school. There are enough people that you might have a couple of them in every school, and those people might be able to illustrate by example what can be done, and it might catch on slowly, but it's going to take a long time for a good set of incentives to pervade the system enough that we're actually educating people rather than anti-educating people, which is what we're currently doing. So anyway, I, I think you and I are making different points. My point is we have a four alarm fire because there's no fix for the one that I'm talking about. And what, what can you describe? I feel like you've made two different points okay. and I don't know what fix you're talking about now. The or, or fix of civilization in which we are training people to actually think independently enough to spot wrong ideas and see around them. What we have is a population that has become compliant 
at best, people have become reflexively skeptical of what they're being told is true, but they don't know how to find... I would caution, I would say cynical then. Reflexively skeptical. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Cynical is the right term. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can't live in a society in which you've got a bunch of people who believe the rabid dogma no matter what it says and how obviously wrong it is, and the other half of society just simply won't believe anything, right? Well, but, I mean, I think this this is... It is, it is a different approach to education, but one that is done. I mean, maybe not on, in these terms exactly, but I know that there's elements of this approach in, um, in the teachings in Rudolf Steiner, right? And Waldorf in some of the, you know, some of the unschooling, like, and there's just, I'm, I'm forgetting many of the names of sure. the traditions at the moment, but there, there are a number of these and, and, and they, and they go up as well. There, there's some, there's some institutions of, of higher ed that, actively are kind of, you know, take these low tech, high nature, high exposure to complexity um, and high exposure to physical labor, honestly, approaches um, to educating the whole human being to not imagining that you're just, you know, doing the analytics or you're just, I don't even know what else it would be. But, um, you know, this this concept if you know, if we're talking about higher ed now, yeah, I think most K twelve teachers don't make this error anyway. But it's amazing the number of college faculty who who basically say the students to me are brains in jars. Like the whole rest of who they are, what it is that they you know that they are, and what informs them, and why they're here, and why they care, and what they're doing next doesn't pertain to me. That's for student affairs. Like that's a different division of the college that 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 matters, and that's absurd. Because and but but that does follow from some of the other confusions of modernity or postmodernity, if you will, which imagines that you can be a set. You know, you, your body is separate from your brain is separate from your psychology. Like all of these things can actually be separated out, and you can say, oh well, you know, today I'm going to work out because you know my body needs a workout. It's like no, that's going to help everything. Like you know, everything that you do is affecting everything that you are, and this reductionist approach to education, to science, to understanding who we are in the universe, everything is, it's, it's not just degrading, but it, it makes no sense. It's totally incoherent. And I think, I, I think the modern educational approach of saying today, you know, right now, children, what we're doing is we're learning to write. Right now, children, what we're learning is how to garden. And, you know, there will be some of those things, like actually you, you should know your times tables, right? Um, but in general, the more holistic the experience and the more you can be called on at any moment to pull something that you know from some domain that you don't think you're working on right now, the more integrated all of your understanding about the universe is going to be and the more likely you are going to be able to be um, competent to solve problems um, under normal conditions and also in an emergency. And that's what we saw as a failure for people to think in the emergency that was this last three years. Yeah, it's a it's a, a obvious demonstration of the absence of the capacity to think, which is what we claim we are uh, inducing in right. students. And I have not heard anybody, any professor, say students are effectively brains in jars. But I certainly have heard them. I have two colleagues who said that to me. I, I believe it. I just didn't hear it. What I heard was the um, beautified version of that. That doesn't sound quite so despicable, right? It's the <laughs> okay. repackaged version, which mm -hmm. is life of the mind, 
right? Uh, the yeah. idea that we are the academics and we have actually discovered that the richness of life is what takes place in your mind and it is disconnected from the world and you have to participate in the world to an extent but it's to be minimized because really what the experience is is the extraction of uh, high-minded ideas from this books. Is like the, and, I'm sorry like this is the ivory tower right this yes. is white collar versus blue collar yep. this is you know hating on the body and anyone who does work with their body and you know meanwhile these people are presumably thinking of themselves you know, many of them like oh i'm also a foodie i care very much about like you don't know anything these people often don't know anything because they are so disconnected i'm sorry i like no no i, I hate this so I, much i, I detest it equally <laughs> yes. but you know i, I hate to keep re returning us here but we've yeah. got a particular kind of failure that we have now seen again and again and it looks like this you've got a system that operates on momentum. Yeah. You yeah. disrupt it in a fundamental way because you're a corrupt son of a bitch and you want the system to, you know, to take your particular idea and propagate it because it will make you wealthy or whatever. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you disrupt the ability of the system to spot garbage because you want to distribute your particular kind of garbage through that system. And then. Hold on. That sounded a little bit too cynical. I think most people don't start by saying, I'm going to produce garbage and I'm going to make sure the system no, makes my garbage. Not. They start by producing something and um, and it's good. And then they produce another thing and it's not as good. And I think, well, but, uh, I still, but it's the thing I just spent a year on and it needs to get accepted. And so, you know, it's, it's not the goal isn't let's get the system to produce, to accept garbage. No, no, I'm talking about something different. I agree with okay. you that what you're talking about is real and that most people start out intending to do good work and they turn into... Uh, counterproductive automatons through a, pro a developmental process. Right. I'm talking about something like uh, pharma, which discovers ah. that not only does it need for scientists to say untrue things on its behalf, but that it can become expert at refining what it is that the scientists will on cue say in order to get the products of pharma consumed, and it becomes uh, a puppeteer, yeah. right? So that is diabolical yes. whatever the internal conversations Such of pharma sound an like puppeteer. it's an it it's a virtuoso right it plays the university the and yeah. uh the public basically the, the hospitals agencies everything all of these Medicine. things it plays them like an orchestra yeah. um but so you figure let's say that there's some pharma thing which needs its message broadcast through people wearing the right kind of garb with the right kinds of degrees and the right kinds of venues and the it, right accents and the right, right, right. all of the mm -hmm. the the proper uh you know the props and the, the settings and everything yeah, yeah so it disrupts the ability of the university to figure out what's true because if the university starts looking at what it's supposed to be saying on behalf of pharma and says hey wait a minute that doesn't even make sense because here are 17 different reasons that we should be skeptical of it right um that will be bad so it gets good at playing the university and everything connected to it uh like an instrument mm -hmm. um and it does not result in a catastrophe right away, right? The university stopped thinking. We don't know exactly when that happened, but it did. And the point is, it's generations later when you notice, right? When the thing is so bad that you can now talk about in public, hey, that is an institution that has completely collapsed, even though if you stood in the center of any campus, it would still look like a functioning university, mm -hmm. right? You still see the professors, you see the students, you see the books, you see that everything that you would expect to see is there, except for the style of thinking that results in insight, right? So 
when you what is the name it's the hardest thing to quantify though right and which is why it was we were in denial and you and i were not in denial we were complaining about the failure of those institutions though maybe we were not complaining uh at the correct level given the degree of uh of failure but, but we saw it but we saw it yeah but yeah. what's the name for the thing when you wreck you have a perverse incentive that causes you to wreck the competence of an institution that then continues to do its job because it doesn't require competence for some period of time. And then you notice way down the road, hey, mm. the inspectors of this kind of engineering stopped checking anything. I mean, we saw it in the financial crisis with yes. the ratings agencies. The ratings agencies were giving ratings that had nothing to do with the quality of the, the financial instrument, right? So it's like, oh... The ratings this, agency. This is critically important, and I, I don't know that that has a name. Uh, I want I want to hear about it if if it does. The, the there's an institution that is uh, important, if not perhaps even necessary, to the functioning of a society as we understand it. It gets captured, broken, something, um, but it continues on because it's already got momentum, inertia. Yeah, uh, and. It is not noticed. It is a shell of itself. It is perhaps even in this case, in many cases, doing the opposite of what it's supposed to do, of what it is continuing to claim to do. And it continues on for some time. And honestly, because it's still going by the same name, and because the thing that it was supposed to be doing is a little hard to track, uh, and because there is some other, in, the, in this case, there is some other entity out there that wants no one to notice. Do not look at the man behind the curtain. It just continues on. And I mean, I think, I think we're seeing this all over. We are seeing it all over. And two points. One, our current president is a, a very special version of this, right? It is now totally obvious that the person inhabiting the office is actually an unnecessary prop, yeah. right? This is an unnecessary prop, and, you know, the country still hobbles along, right? Yeah. Who is that? What, who's really in charge, right? What does yeah. this mean? So anyway, A, we got some style of problem where the thing moves along based on momentum, Ultimately, a crisis emerges that reveals how feeble it has become, mm -hmm. at which point people become serious about fixing it. But what they don't spot is that there is no fix. At the point you've let the thing go for generations, your fix is going to take generations. And that is the disaster. And then, then there will be the people who trot in and say, but we need X. And you say, yes, but that isn't X. Yep. But we need the institutions, but we need the media, but we need the journalism, but we need the medical fixes for the deadly diseases. Yes, but those aren't fixes and those aren't universities and that's not media. They're not doing journalism, they're not seeking truth, they're not curing the things they're claiming to cure. None of those things are what they seem to be. And so when you trot in saying, oh, we need those things, like, no, we need things that were once called that but we don't have those things anymore. And the things that are pretending to be them are doing far more harm than good. Yeah, we see it at Wikipedia. Uh, we see it at the CDC. We see it all over the place, but- well, We need a CDC, Brett. 
That very well may be, but the people to staff a CDC are not at the CDC. I'm not saying none of them are. There are some people inside the CDC, inside the Congress. There are people everywhere who could be liberated and would start doing the job if given that opportunity, but there aren't enough of it to run these things. That's the, that's the concern, is that actually... Not even, not currently in the institutions, but anywhere. Yes, or, you know, they... How would you even find them, right? If they're not yeah. credentialed in the way you would expect. Well, didn't... so at some level, we've got a hiring problem. But like we... a, a global level, like how do you find the talent for the all of all of the institutions that actually need to be functional, that are not functional, and get those, match those people with those positions and give them the authority to do what needs to be done. Right. It's a nightmare problem. Yeah. And I think, I think I've spotted what I was getting at. Mm-hmm. There are every one of these problems where you discover an institution that has been running on momentum at the point a crisis that reveals its incapacity emerges out of nowhere, right? These are problems for which bad incentives were enough to cause the problem and good incentives are not enough to fix it. That's the problem. It's the asymmetry. It was mm. much easier to cause this disruption than it is to, to fix it. It's a basic yeah. it's like institutional entropy right? You have created institutions mm -hmm. that cannot be resurrected by reversing the things that ruined them in the first place. Yeah, you cannot, as I've said of the universities, just scrape the woke off the top. Right. Not sufficient. Won't the happen. rot is far deeper than that. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Okay. Um, change of topic? Sure. Uh, did you want to do a thought experiment or do you want me to talk about uh, cancer research first? Uh, I would like to do a thought experiment, but um, in light of the darkness of where we have just been, I want to take a brief interlude. Okay. And uh, so yesterday was Independence Day. As we've mentioned, that was kind of a poignant moment for us. It ended uh, with uh, the most amazing uh, fireworks show I've ever seen oh my by God. far. By far. By far. It was extraordinary. I was not expecting that. We live nope. in a you know, an island, small town. I was expecting a little fireworks display, which would be kind of cool. It, this was... Blew uh, me away. Blew us all away. The four of us were like, whoa. Stunning. <laughs> what happened? Stunning. But earlier <laughs> in the day, um, uh, we moved into a place that had a garden that was fully overgrown when we moved in. And that garden, you have been resurrecting. Uh, at, a flower garden, at, not a food garden. Right, not yeah. a food garden, but a flower yeah. garden that to me looked like it was going to be, it, it was going to need to be just totally dug up and new stuff put in there. It was It was overgrown. But the person who had initially put it in was quite a thoughtful person, apparently the, the, a very... Yeah, the woman whose home it was um, before she died. Who's was now, she died in her 80s. Yeah, uh, um, but she she was apparently an amazing woman. An amazing woman, apparently like an had been a pilot. Yeah. Uh, anyway, a oh. person with an incredible life story who had obviously put... I think she had tremendous gardening insight and... Um, Sort of, you know, the, the the approach so far has been get rid of the obvious things that we don't want, the grass that shows up, you yeah, know, and and just and wait and see wait what else and see there. what else will come up, and it's been remarkable. It's been remarkable. Yeah. So anyway, uh, there's this uh, little miracle that has emerged this spring for us. It's our first spring in the place, and um, you know, we knew we had hummingbirds, which is cool. There's only a couple of species of hummingbirds up here, but they're both. You know, all hummingbirds are cool, and these guys are especially uh, behaviorally interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and anyway, the garden has become a little paradise for bumblebees and hummingbirds. And so anyway, 
I I love photographing hummingbirds and I haven't done very much in the temperate zone because there aren't, it's just hard to do. Yeah. But in our garden, it's become possible. So yesterday uh, I decided to see if I could capture hummingbirds, but it's tricky in our garden because in most gardens, there's like a plant that attracts hummingbirds. If you can spot it, you can set up on a tripod, get ready for the bird to come. And if you're lucky, you get it. Um, in our garden, you never know where the bird's going to be because there's so much going on. There's a lot. Um, there are a lot of species the hummingbirds go for, but there's also what seems to be their favorite is this toad flax. Uh, and we've got just a lot of spires of toad flax. So anyway, yesterday I, just, I decided to see if I could do it handheld. I would just figure out where the bird was and see if I could catch it. And yeah. Zach, do you want to show? I, I got a bunch of really good uh. pictures. But anyway, um, so I believe this is a female rufous hummingbird. And a rufous hummingbird is an amazing animal. Their migratory route is from deep in Mexico, and they range up to Alaska oh in the summer. Um, so anyway. Are all, do you know, are all the populations um, migratory, or I are believe, some of them resident? I believe yeah. all of them are migratory. I'm, I'm not an expert on this species, but that's what I think is going on here. So here you have this beautiful female uh, hummingbird. Uh, drinking nectar from this toad flax uh, in this amazing garden planted by uh, this now now gone uh, but very insightful woman. And I, I think it's pretty clear that she was fond of hummingbirds herself and mm -hmm. planted uh, to attract them. So anyway, I thought I would... Uh, Wonderful. Apologies Gorgeous. to the people who are just listening. Um, this is a beautiful animal, and it is. Uh, what a privilege to get to see them. Yeah, and what a beautiful yeah. photograph, right? Thank you. Nice to see it on Independence Day, too. That felt right. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, on to the thought experiment. And it's just a brief thought experiment, but it dawned on me uh, uh, actually at the parade that we went to uh, yesterday, the New Year's. Uh, New Year's. Nope. Uh, how about Warmer Independence Day <laughs> parade? in which there was a group of uh, disabled uh, athletes, I think. But I'm, not, I'm not sure. In any case, it spurred a thought, um, which was if you take the logic whereby uh, trans women, that is to say people born male who... Uh, declare themselves female and are now competing in women's sports and you map it onto the Special Olympics, why is it, would it be permitted to declare oneself disabled in order to compete in the Special Olympics? And the reason that I think this is a useful thought experiment is that that would obviously be a despicable behavior. You know, if you decided that what you really wanted was a gold medal in something, and you declared yourself disabled, and then you beat some actually disabled people, and you ascended to the podium, and then gave your interview and said how proud you were and how hard you had worked. Yep. Right? Everybody would presumably in 2023 look at you like, well, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Right? That's not cool. That's despicable. That's despicable. This is yeah. an institution <clears throat> that exists for a purpose, mm -hmm. and you know that that purpose is interesting. <clears throat> it turns out the Special Olympics were founded by. Uh, so I just pulled it out. Uh, founded Eunice in 1968 by Kennedy Eunice Kennedy Schreiber. Yep. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I found it a little hard to find a precise description of exactly what she was um, doing, but I think it's pretty clear that we can make the following argument. 
you want yeah, you want, you want to know what it is? So it just says, founded in 1968 by Eunice Kennedy Shriver, Special Olympics provides people with intellectual disabilities continuing opportunities to realize their potential, develop physical fitness, demonstrate courage, and experience joy and friendship. And then under the facts, it's a little bit small, um, who is eligible eligible to participate? Yep. Should I share it? Yeah, yeah. Um, to be eligible to participate in Special Olympics, you must be at least eight years old and identified by an agency or professional as having one of the following conditions intellectual disabilities, cognitive delays as measured by formal assessment, or significant learning or vocational problems due to cognitive delay that require or have required specially designed instruction. So that identified by an agency or professional as having an intellectual disability, for instance. Now, given that professionals are identifying boys as girls and girls as boys. There you go. What's, why not? Why not? Why not? And why the not? answer is in 2023, why not is pretty obvious because it would be despicable. However, it's despicable for boys to be called girls in order to compete in women's sports. Right. And so I did want to. So there's there's obviously a important distinction here. The reason that the mind bridles at the idea of uh, a abled person declaring themselves disabled, getting an institution or a professional to sign on and going and beating actually disabled people in order to get uh, awards. Yeah. Right. The reason that that is uh not something that we can accept in 2023 is that um we still reserve in our minds a position of protection for a person who is intellectually disabled in this regard right mm -hmm. some kind of mm -hmm. uh I, I hope i'm not using an offensive term but some kind of pity would cause us, I think, still in 2023 to defend such people. And women are not uh, incapacitated men. This is an entirely different phenomenon. What women are is optimized for a different subset of roles in biology that means that in almost all sports, women and men cannot compete directly with each other. Fairly. Fairly, right. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a slight distinction here, but I believe it is a distinction without a difference because mm -hmm. what has happened is we built women's sports precisely because half of the population was perfectly capable of benefiting from sport and competing vigorously in sport, but not if we, you know, did it all in one uh, mixed grouping. And so yes. that was progress. That was progress. And it created the ability for all of the good things that follow from sport to reach half of the population, right? By breaching that boundary in some sort of uh, ill-begotten attempt to protect some tiny number of people from some uh, largely imagined hazard right, is obviously upside down and backwards. But I just think yes. by, you know, and thought experiments, yep. I have to say, we have to be careful with because many people do not understand their proper logical status. They are not experiments as if you have run them in a laboratory. They are not validations of something. Or in the field. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they are not validations of uh, what will happen if you did run such an experiment. But they are useful, um, A, to... Uh, predict what might happen and then mm -hmm. find out, uh, or in order to explore territory where you can't run an experiment, right? So I don't know what will happen here. I don't know if we will ultimately find uh, terrible people who uh, misunderstand what the 
nature of pride actually is and seek to be proud of themselves for winning an award they are not entitled to by beating people who uh, are disabled and therefore competing in the Special Olympics. But I wouldn't rule out the possibility that we're going there. I mean, we basically I don't see why not. destroyed every kind of logic there is. We you know, now cannot agree that two plus two equals four, that men cannot become women, that pedophilia is bad. You and I can. You and I can, and presumably uh, most of our audience, maybe all of our audience, save for the few haters, uh, can agree on these things. Yeah. But we civilizationally cannot figure out how to shut down the sophists and the cheaters who wish to use our inability to precisely articulate exactly why in this instance you are not allowed to do X, right? That's right. what they're doing again and again. And this is a case. And back to your point that it's much easier to destroy than to build. Yeah, it's another it's another kind of uh, institutional entropy. Yeah. Um, and I will say I was... Um, when I went looking at the Special Olympics site, I was, as now happens so frequently, uh, confused, emotionally confused at some of what I read. Mm. Because things that 10 years ago would, yeah, go to the front page of their site. Things that 10 years ago would not have struck me at all, would have struck me as just normal. Um, there it is. What, what is it? The revolution is inclusion. Oh, oh, hello. Right? Now, the revolution is inclusion. This is the Special Olympics. They're just... I can read that both ways. I can read that as um, the Special Olympics are heroic people who are looking to include people whose quality of life would otherwise be lower. Because, mm -hmm. of course, why do we care less about the quality of life of a mentally disabled person? And, and it is wonderful that there's an organization that wishes to, to give them the kinds of rewards that come from vigorous participation in sports. And isn't it amazing that this works, right? Yeah. On the other hand, I can read that uh, inclusion as a code word. Yeah. And the point is, is that word yeah. setting them up for, well... Why is the Special Olympics excluding certain people who wish to participate? And, you know, here I have a person who this institution has declared disabled. And, you know, I could see that happening. So, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> inclusion starts out as an idea uh, that makes good sense, intuitive sense, moral sense. But what it actually means is we've had a group with rigid boundaries and we've been excluding some people and so now we want to open it up but that doesn't mean that every competition every meeting every organization has to have its doors wide open to everyone just as just as a nation state is allowed to have borders uh a women's basketball team is allowed to say no men allowed if you're a group of neighborhood kids, you're allowed to build a treehouse and say no boys or no girls. Like we're allowed to create groups for ourselves and organizations with missions in this case, specifically for those people who had been excluded from competitive sport before, right? And is it possible that someone could come along and say, ah, I don't have an intellectual disability, um, but I wanna participate. It's hard to imagine at this point anyone would be would fall for it, but given what has happened to women's sports, why not? 
And then given what has happened to the so-called professionals who would diagnose such a thing, of course, if you're willing to diagnose a girl as a boy, why would you not diagnose totally normal intellectual functioning as a disability of some sort? We know that's happening. And then use that as a ticket to entry into the Special Olympics. So um, I have become uh, very careful in my thinking around liberty. I think this is a, a, an idea, a concept that is both fundamentally important, as many people realize, and in which the precision surrounding our understanding of it is where it either does great good or great harm. Okay. And so anyway, I've, dis I've distinguished in my mind between liberty, something that you're technically free to do, and realized liberty, something that you're in a position to act on, right? And one of the things that I've noticed is that there, there is a paradox which we have to get good at thinking about, which is good rules, which restrict liberty. That's what rules do, Yes. right? Increase realized liberty, right? Good rules, that should be their purpose, mm -hmm. right? In fact, ultimately you can make a strong argument that the success of a society can be judged based on its effect on realized liberty. Now you have to integrate over future generations too. We can't rob future generations of the ability to do stuff in order to be more liberated in the present. So that's a potential loophole that you gotta be careful about. But a society that actually produces increased levels of realized liberty for its citizens going forward is a successful society. And the point I wanna make is that the rules that exclude people born male from competing in women's sports people who are able competing in the Special Olympics. These are things that clearly increase realized liberty by excluding, right? Mm -hmm. As soon as you let men into women's sports, there's no women's sports. We're back where we were before women's sports, right? Men will destroy women's sports. Women having sports is how many people are women? Gee, it seems like a lot of them, right? Do you think any of them would be interested in playing sports? Yeah, again, a lot, yeah. right? Do we need sports for them? it seems like a huge benefit to society for women to be able to get the benefits of sport. So the point is we need a rule that keeps people from destroying women's sports by claiming a liberty. That's very interesting. I, I think I wanna chew on that a little bit more. This you know, liberty versus realized liberty, yes, I agree with what you've said. I, I'm not sure <clears throat> that the advantages that are accrued by the exclusion, <clears throat> um, I guess in a ledger that I have in my head that's not, I, I don't have it yet, I, you know, I also have justice and safety as, you know, as categories, right? I so uh, the, my, my now long-term relationship with this concept yeah. of liberty is about, the, the reason that I see it as special is that it integrates the others, mm -hmm. right? So in other words, um, yeah, I, th I thought that was what you were doing. It's like it's an aggregate term. It is an it is an integrative value, and therefore this is the place. So I I used to be um, I think too hard on the ideological libertarians, right? Mm -hmm. Because their focus on liberty is often I think more closely aligned with uh, theoretical liberty, and they can be dismissive of rules that yep. create uh, greater realized liberty. But what I think they have right, and I think they actually have very right, is that if you were gonna pick one, that's the one because it's integrative, right? Yeah. You need a rich 
realized version of liberty. But if you just maximize realized liberty, then the point is, oh, you take care of all the other stuff because you're not liberated if you're, um, you know, dying of cancer because you breathed pollutants, right? So the point is rules that free your lungs of the pollutants that will cause them to produce a cancer are liberty enhancing if mm. you instantiate liberty correctly. Um, so anyway, there, there's... Yep. Mm. There's something there, but you know, I, the, the ultimate version of this, the first one I realized was uh, how much liberty do we get from the ability to get on an airplane in one part of the world and within hours be any other part of the world we want? That's an amazing level of realized liberty, right? Yes, it, it comes from an absolutely ruthless set of rules surrounding the safety of aircraft. Right. right. And you wouldn't want to be in a wild west of aircraft where they were falling out of the sky all the time because the cheapest tickets uh, were to the carriers that were cutting the most corners and maintenance. Right. right. You want an FAA that works and you want international bodies mm -hmm. that work and that, you know, agree on the rules of, you know, altitudes and, you know, air traffic control and all that stuff. Good regulations and good regulators increase realized liberty. Bingo. That's the thing. Mm hmm. I bet they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the devil's in the details. Yeah. Of, you know, what good might define you. Know, depends on what the definition of good is. Darn. But yeah, it, it does. Well, it's one of these things. This is another uh, useful piece of analytical toolkit is there are lots of things that you can figure out uh, accurately and you can nail them, but you cannot operationalize them easily that right. the understanding sure. what's true about the thing is easy understanding how you manifest that as a set of uh you know rules and structures that implements it is much harder given that it's going to be entirely apes doing the implementation oh that's not good it's going to be really no. messy have you met apes a few <laughs> yeah. yeah it's the apes it's the apes that are the problem yeah um, not that if somehow it had been dolphins, I think it would be any better no. at whatever point they got to our level of technological and postmodern progress. Certain things would be better. Um, dolphins, the forest would probably be safer. The, the forest would be safer and, uh, the dolphins would give each other the finger less often. I mean, ah, in fact, never. Yes. Yeah. Never. Never. They, they might have, yeah. Okay. They'd give each other the flipper, but... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Good. Let's talk a little bit, and I, I really don't want to go deep on the science in part because there's two new pieces of science out um, that the papers aren't available to those of us who have been thrown out of academia. SciHub doesn't have them up yet. Um, so we just have the abstracts. And But really the point is I was made aware uh, in Nature News, which is the like news, or news arm of nature, again, one of the world's two supposed best science journals, um, this week they reported that, uh, and I'll come back to this piece, but for right now I'll just tell you the headline, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> how the Y chromosome makes some cancers more deadly for men. Two studies help to explain why colorectal and bladder tumors take a bigger toll on men than on women. Okay. Yep. So <clears throat> I went to, God, <clears throat> Colin's getting to me a little bit too, I think. Sorry to hear that. Uh, so the research that Nature News is citing uh, is, here's one of them. This is uh, the just beautifully named 
histone dimethylase KDM5D upregulation drives sex differences in colon cancer. Again, published in Nature, June 21st. Um, and all we have is the abstract. Again, it's not available to those of us not affiliated with um, fancy institutions at the moment. Um, they begin by saying sex exerts a profound impact on cancer incidence, spectrum, and outcomes. And there's actually some other really good research I found that, that really, you know, cl clarifies like to what degree is this lifestyle across many cancers. It's like, you know what, it's, you can't attribute all the differences in cancer rates um, to different decisions that men and women make. Like the fact that men are more likely to smoke and more likely to tell you to hold their beer while they do something stupid um, doesn't fully um, explain the, the differences. The contents of the subreddit, why women live longer, is not fully explanatory. <laughs> yes. So... So now there's some research trying to figure out, okay, so what might be the things that are actually going on that are attributable to, you know, underlying sex differences? And uh, they, you know, this is a model, yada. Um, let's see, they say, oh boy, I, I can't even figure out where, okay, t take my screen off for a moment here so I can look at my notes. Um, I believe, do I have, this I don't even have this in the notes. Okay, so that one um, is basically finding um, that a particular Y chromosome gene, not Y chromosomes generally, but y, a particular gene that is found on the Y chromosome uh, raises the risks of some colorectal cancer spreading to other parts of the body. Now it's a model, it's a mouse model. I would also point out surprising because the Y chromosome in mammals uh, is not a well-populated chromosome. The logic that is frequently advanced in evolutionary circles is that the rest of the genome can't trust the Y chromosome and has therefore shut it down so that it encodes primarily just the gene that turns you male. So, so precisely the other piece of research, so which is this one, uh, also published same day last week or week and a half ago, whenever, uh, in Nature, why chromosome loss in cancer drives growth by evasion of adaptive immunity. Wait, 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 wait. Let me think about that. Why chromosome loss in cancer drives growth by evasion of adaptive immunity. So let's, this abstract actually is a little bit less ridiculously written. So let's, right. let's work through it a little bit. Yeah. Um, loss of the Y chromosome, L-O-Y. Loss of the Y chromosome is observed in multiple cancer types, as you just said, including 10 to 40% of bladder cancers, but its clinical and biological significance is unknown. Here, using genomic and transcript transcriptomic studies, we report that loss of the Y chromosome correlates with poor prognoses in patients with bladder cancer. We performed in-depth studies of naturally occurring loss of Y chromosome mutant bladder cancer cells, as well as those with targeted deletion of Y chromosome by CRISPR-Cas9. Y positive and Y negative tumors grew similarly in vitro, whereas Y negative tumors were more aggressive than Y positive tumors in immune competent hosts and T cell dependent manner. So, and, and this is the first time you're seeing this. Yeah, I'm wondering. So I don't know where this goes. Yeah, and, and again, I don't have the full, whole paper. I just have the abstract. Okay, so here, here's what I think. A, there's an interesting question I actually mentioned this question to Grider back when, before mm -hmm. she had uh, pretended she didn't know me. Yeah. Uh, and then she went on and did some work on it, actually. 
Um, the question is, okay, telomeres regulate how many cell divisions uh, you get to make, but you've got a bunch of different chromosomes. Which telomere is it? Is it the average? Is it the shortest? Whatever. Yeah. Possible that the Y chromosome, which has a special telomeric implication, because you will, you will recall I got very excited one day when I was doing the telomere library work, mm -hmm. because I found that there was evidence that telomeres of sperm produced by older fathers mm. have longer telomeres. And the reason that that's interesting is that it provides a mechanism for a, an individual to discover some information about how safe the world they are in is and to convey a degree of longevity to offspring on the basis of it. So there's a trade-off between mm -hmm. cancer suppression and longevity. And the point is, in a very dangerous environment, you don't worry so much about longevity because you probably won't live to benefit from it. So you worry more about cancer suppression. Mm -hmm. So if you found that you were in a very safe environment where you, your offspring could potentially live a very long time, then you might imbue them with longer telomeres so that their tissues could replace themselves better at some extra risk of cancer. Mm -hmm. So if the Y chromosome is specially implicated in a mechanism for censusing the world to figure out whether or not it's a moment for longer or shorter telomeres in offspring, then the Y chromosome loss here mm -hmm. might be, I guess I would expect it to be earlier in the cascade. I would expect telomere, I would expect the loss of the Y chromosome to liberate cells to produce more copies, which would then predispose to cancer, but I guess I wouldn't necessarily well, expect the cancers to be more immune evasive. So again, um, again, we don't have the full paper. Together, these results demonstrate that cancer cells with loss of the Y mutations alter T cell function, promoting T cell exhaustion and sensitizing them to PD-1 targeted immunotherapy. Mm. So that, impl that implies the T cell exhaustion, unless I'm mistaken, is the result of the fact that T and this is actually covered in, in the paper that Debbie and I ultimately wrote on this topic. Yeah. T and B cells have a special predicament with respect to how many cell divisions they go through, mm -hmm. right? Because the progenitors of the T and B cells, most of them are like bank guards that go their whole career and never get triggered. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to do a lot of cell division. But if you have a pathology that is causing a particular subset of T cells to react, they have to proliferate tremendously because the way that they get better at fighting the disease is through clonal selection. So you have to have a huge amount of proliferative capacity for those small set of cells that gets triggered, which is part of why lymphoma and leukemia are likely mm. cancers because you have a tissue in which you have to turn down the cancer protection in order to get the immunity. So what they're describing with respect to T cell exhaustion is that the limits on the reproduction of B and T cells are very high, but they're not infinite. Right. And so you can exhaust the capacity of a particular subset of these cells to react. And if that subset is necessary to fight a particular cancer, then the cancer gets liberated by exhausting those cells. Yes, I think that's right. So interesting. Yeah. So fascinating. Uh, I wish that we could say more. I mean, I think you've already, I think, intuited a lot from just, just that one abstract, and I'm not going to go back into the other one. Um, the research 
may be exciting. It does seem to be data-driven rather than hypothesis-driven. It does seem to be at considerable risk of concluding something. And you know, in the in the first piece of research, it's a gene on the Y um, that causes cancer. And it's the other one is the like it's it's the loss of the Y that is indicative here. And they're going in opposite directions, right? Yeah. Like ish, not exactly because it's a gene on the Y, not the Y. Um, and you know the nature news article says taken together the two studies are a step toward understanding why so many cancers have a bias towards men taken together what are you talking about right they they're, they're not supporting one another right but they're both about the y chromosome they're both about you know they're both about sex based differences in cancer rates so i i wonder i think you're onto something when you point out this is data driven, not hypothesis driven. Yeah. And even if it were hypothesis driven, it would be narrowly mechanistically hypothesis yes, driven, not so. evolutionarily. Which means that whatever downstream applied medical benefits that happen as a result of this research are going to be narrow, reductionist, and as at least as likely to be dangerous as helpful. Yeah. But especially I wonder... given that we have things that seem to like brought like at a gross level go in opposite directions with regard to it's the why that's doing it to you oh it's the loss of the why that's doing it to you like well okay different cancers different situations that like do not make a decision based on this if you're not also aware of what's going on over here right yeah um in this case i'm wondering uh one of the coolest pieces of logic that uh came out of the telomere work was why early sunburns are more likely to cause a cancer which happens late in life than mm -hmm. late sunburns. Yeah. And the idea, you will recall, was that because you have more cell divisions left before you run out of telomere, a mutation that causes a cell line to run away and reproduce without regulation produces a bigger patch of cells that can then get a second mutation that turns it into a tumor. So one possibility is that the loss of the Y is actually a red herring here mm. because what's happened mm -hmm. is a cell that goes on to be a cancer and therefore be noticed by people who study cancer is one that escaped telomere regulation by the Y. If the Y is disproportionately likely to be the chromosome that limits cell divisions, that sets the Hayflick limit for those cells, then a cell that had lost its Y would create a bigger prototumor and it would be more likely to become a tumor, which would be more likely to be noticed by people who study tumors. Mm -hmm. And therefore it may be downstream of, it was the loss of the Y that triggered the tumor in the first place or increased the likelihood of it. Yeah. It wasn't the loss mm -hmm. of the Y that was involved in the immune evasion, right? Right. So, I don't know, super interesting. Super interesting. There's a lot more to be done there. I mean, this, <clears throat> This whole area actually has some intriguing stuff around, for instance, um, imprinting. Uh, you know, so uh, genomic imprinting, meaning that some genes actually keep keep track of, um, you know, scare quotes, uh, keep track of which parent they came from. And so there's been some research. I won't be able to pull it up right now. So let me see if I can remember. Turner syndrome, uh, which is where uh, a, f a female baby um, only has one X. Mm -hmm. uh, and so is X, oh, X not um, at that 23rd position. Um, apparently, you can, they, some research has been done now which can track, okay, but is your X maternally derived or paternally derived? Like, mm -hmm. which X are you missing? 
And so with regard to looking at, um, you know, it, so, and, and does the body keep track when you have uh, a, a girl child with Turner syndrome who got her ex from mom and is missing an ex from dad, she is likely to be less intellectually impaired than when she only has the ex from dad. So the, you know the the imprinting is is there and it's 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 tracking what parent it came from and maternally inherited versus paternally inherited exes in girl children with only one ex um, are less impaired. So a lot a lot to think about, right? Biology is very interesting. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. But, Super uh, interesting yeah, and complex. So this like I that was a paper I was actually able to find. So that's the one I read as opposed to the abstracts um, on this, but. The stupid punchline of all of this. Yeah. Okay. The incredibly stupid punchline, other than, you know, as opposed to the science, um, which we'd like to be talking about, is here. Let me see if I can find it. Um, okay. Here's the um, Nature News article How the Y chromosome makes some cancers more deadly for men. Cool. Two studies help to explain why colorectal and bladder tumors are worse in men than women. Not very far into this article, however is the following parenthetical. This article uses men to describe people with a Y chromosome, while recognizing that not all people who identify as men have a Y chromosome, and not all people who have a Y chromosome identify as men. Thank you for that. Oh, that's very clarifying. Oh, that's, yeah. So, I mean, at one level, thank you, idiot nature for sending you know us into a path of now uh, there's some stuff to think about with regard to cancer and telomeres and there's some stuff i'm not thinking about with regard to genomic imprinting um and but that that line there in this article that is explicitly about sex differences i mean all is lost like how how to to the point that we've been making this entire episode how could we possibly recover all right think about it when this they way. put that that sentence into a piece about this research. All right. So you go to a coral reef. You, now, please. Can I? You, <laughs> okay. you, you dive under the okay. water and you open your eyes. Mm -hmm. Things are blurry as hell. Yeah. Right? For obvious reasons we won't go into. Somebody hands you a mask, right? Masks are clarifying, right? Nature is supposed to be clarifying. But nature has become like a mask that somebody has loaded with mud. Right? Mm -hmm. It's like you have a mud mask mm -hmm. that you are attempting to look, and it is not as clarifying as perhaps it once was. And uh, perhaps, yeah, maybe not. Perhaps the mud maybe is not. not as clarifying as the mask pre. -mud. These people should get a grip, and they should uh, go back to sciencing stuff because that was better. Just don't, just don't even know what to do with this. You know what it is? That is a science. Don't hurt me, wall. You remember I, your no, Don't Hurt Me wall? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, at the point that the Portland broke down explicitly and had protests every day that reliably for 100 nights straight turned into riots every night and uh, there was mass destruction uh, and people started putting up these signs, basically these Black Lives Matter signs all over their storefronts. And I called them Don't Hurt Me walls. And I, and I um, you know, I have pictures of a lot of them. We talked about them on air. And, you know, that's largely what they look like. Some of these people were true believers. Um, 
and but it doesn't really matter if they were or not. They were putting these up as as a as a form of contrition and basically and some in some cases they were literally begging. They're like I'm a female owned business, I'm a BIPOC owned business, don't hurt me, I'm on the side of justice and you know, whatever. They were don't don't hurt me, Walls. Um I don't I'm afraid not here. I, I think that nature is captured. Oh, I believe it is. It's captured, but from the point of view of you, okay, you've got a piece of research. Maybe, yeah. Make some cancers more deadly for men. I mean, first of all, people realize something. If you rob us of the ability to talk about males and females in simple terms, and we start taking seriously the idea that if you say you're a man, then you are, then the point is we are actually going to lose the ability to analyze data to find patterns that are important to, for example, our health. Yes. Right? And who is most likely to be harmed by this? It's going to be women. Historically, the people most likely to be harmed by like, oh, let's just treat them all like they're the same, it doesn't matter, meant that the research was done on one class of people and it mostly was men. It's going to hurt everybody. I mean, I, I, I agree with you that there's a special risk for women, but the we are, it is literally, I mean, it's, it's like the, the, the mouse telomere problem, right? Mm -hmm. The mouse telomere problem is a wicked problem because it actually means that whatever you study in these creatures has a big old asterisk on it that nobody's aware of. Yes. And so the point is you are now becoming blinder. The more things you stack on top of broken mice, the more you don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so this is another, hey, you keep playing that game here, you're not going to know what you're talking about 10 years from now. You're right. not going to be able to know what the data means. And you're frankly handing a super weapon to the sophists who are going to claim mm -hmm. that this sex stuff is all made up in the first place because the data is going to reflect chaos, right? Total, total chaos. You can, not, you know, you're going to have women who only get to say they're chest feeding and men who get to breastfeed and, you know, just, just complete insanity across the board. We used to think that the Y chromosome turned you into a male, but now you can see in the data that lots of people with Y chromosomes are females. That's what it's going to say, mm -hmm. right? It's going to be impossible to make normal sense if you let this stuff into science, nature, cell, yep. these other places. So for fuck's sake, people, stop it. That's right. Right? Our ability to make sense to each other is at stake, and you guys are playing games with it, and you have no right. Yeah. Just before you have something to say, but put the screen back up just so people can see it again. The the counterpoint between the headline of this Nature News article and the highlighted uh, mm -hmm. the highlighted sentence. Yeah, I think yeah. this is them admitting that they destroyed the ability to report anything scientifically, and so they're going to redefine the terms as they was what they actually mean using the woke terminology. But they, I think, there were a number of these articles that actually used completely incorrect definitions of everything mm -hmm. and you yeah. couldn't get any information across that's right and so they've actually yeah. made it so that the rest of the article can kind of work here yeah it's just and it's a parenthetical it's literally a parenthetical they've literally said mm -hmm. like and, and what that what that is supposed to mean a parenthetical is the work yeah. could exist with the same meaning without this thing yeah right and so at one level maybe this is this is like the necessary nod. This is the don't hurt me wall, as you as as you suggested. I think I'm I'm coming around to that perspective. This is like the little tiny don't hurt me bit. Yep. And and by literally putting that in parentheses, they have said, and you could just ditch this, and the same meaning obtains throughout the rest of the article, and it does. And in fact, you need to ditch it, else you can't take this seriously. And the, you know the rest of the description. I, you know, I don't think this was 
I, I do I do have concerns about the research it's reporting on, as mm -hmm. we talked about, uh, but it it doesn't seem to be suffused with wokeries other than that parenthetical. Because they discovered that that doesn't work for this at all. You can't do it. You 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 can't talk about this research if you don't know what a man is. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the funny thing is, okay, the first part of what we talked about here yeah. is completely fascinating. And the pattern is bound. If you can figure out why the pattern is what it is, it is bound to make us much smarter about these very important topics mm -hmm. like cancer, right? Cancers yep. that are difficult to treat. So the idea that we, instead of focusing on this very difficult puzzle, what is the meaning of cancers that are lacking a Y chromosome? Why would that be? Is that because they're the, them becoming cancers was the result of them losing a Y and evading a hay flick limit or not? That's an interesting question that has, it's consequential for our understanding of cancer, mm -hmm. right? Instead, we're going to talk about this stuff that isn't consequential for anything other than how confused we're going to be in the future, right? Yeah. And that's insane. So, I mean, look, there are very good people who are studying in a parallel area. I would point out uh, Bernie Crespi and Kyle Summers have done some very interesting work on the evolutionary dynamics inside of cancers, which is a very fascinating topic mm -hmm. because a cancer uh, basically dies with you. And so the evolutionary dynamics are bounded within the short period of time that the cancer is uh, present and it unless, I mean, unless it's are, contagious, which there like are a Tasmanian few. Tasmanian devil cancer. Right. And I will is, yeah. bet you that a lot more cancers turn out to be this as well. But yeah. whether they it's do terrifying. or they don't, the idea that there's a whole branch of evolutionary science that is about the short period of time between the uh, yeah. instantiation of a cancer and the death of the patient, yeah. um, this is a perfect place to have that conversation. Yeah. And it has real implications for how you treat these things. So, you know, let's elevate the Bernie Crespies and the Kyle Summers of the world and get those questions addressed rather than this lunacy over, um, you know, when we say the word men, what we mean. <laughs> yes. Let's. Yes. Shall yes. We? Yes. Let's. Mm -hmm. Let's. All right. I think that brings us to the end for today. Uh, we will be back in a few short days, though. We will be back in three days on Saturday, July 8th at 12.30 p.m. Pacific. We'll do a And uh, come back on July, Wednesday, July 9th. And from then on, we're going to be doing our live streams at 11.30 a.m. Pacific on Wednesdays. And starting then, uh, <clears throat> we are going to encourage people who want to participate in a... Um, in a, basically a watch party and doing chat to, to go into our locals uh, for that. And we will have more to say about that on Saturday. Um, let's see, other things to mention. Natural selections this week. I just did a, a slight review of some of the um, some of the freedoms and rights that we are uh, we Americans are granted in some of our founding documents. And with high hopes that uh, yesterday marking 240. We can make it many, many more, but uh, 250 seems like a really good short-term goal. Yeah, let's make it to 250 That's, and then we'll talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got Twitter subscriptions going, although they're being weird. So They are being weird. Yeah. But anyway, uh, sign up and we'll do some stuff. Uh, I promise. 
and we've got uh, the darkhorsestore.org uh, where the print shop and the store are run by lovely couple in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, we've got PSYOP Until Proven Otherwise, and uh, the um, somewhat explained uh, Saddle Up the Direwolves We Ride Tonight, <laughs> that we explained that somewhat in the last Q&A. Um, we've, uh, we've got our book, Hunter Gathers Guide to the 21st Century, available everywhere, including signed copies right here in the San Juan Islands at Darvels on Orcas. And um, consider joining our Patreons. We are going to start uh, encouraging people to go over to Locals and make, for instance, the Discord server available there. Uh, but uh, we, still have, uh, we still have stuff going on at Patreon. We've got a couple of monthly conversations that you have. We've got a private Q&A over at mine. And, uh, and Discord server is lively and wonderful. And whenever we do a Q&A, we start with a question from them. And uh, once again, consider checking out our sponsors this week, which were Hillsdale, uh, Mudwater and Vivo Barefoot and subscribe to the channel like like episodes that you like share we appreciate that we are supported by you and until we see you next time be good to the ones you love eat good food and get outside fly low and avoid the adjuvants <laughs> <laughs>